0: It's, it's a weird line to walk, and I feel like maybe people like you and I, or maybe just me, if, if anybody's going to cross those gaps, it has to be people like us. So don't we have a fucking duty to do it, is my question. And it's the question I, I'm asking myself every day. Uh. Have you ever felt profoundly inadequate to the moment? Let's just do a quick show of hands. Anybody? Any moment at all? This moment, for example, right here, the one we're living through, I sure fucking do. I've sat on this interview for about a month, maybe even longer at this point, (laughs) not because it wasn't good, although I did kind of fuck up the audio a little bit in a way that I'm not proud of, and my uh, less than journeyman audio skills, let me say, took me a long time to get it kind of in a shape that it's even usable. I actually think it's too good. This interview we're about to play with Sean Vestal, it's kind of too good. Insofar as it diagnoses exactly what white people need to do in this moment, the moment we're living through right now, and the various ways Sean and I as individuals are kind of coming to terms with our, you know, historical failures in these ways. And honestly, I shouldn't be using historic as a modifier because they're probably daily failures to be the sort of people that this time demands. So anyways, that's what this conversation is about. And it's really good. It's really... Sort of powerful, in in my opinion, anyways. But it came at a point in the last couple of weeks when I don't know, you know, when I felt a little bit depressed, got a little bit of the COVID blues, and I've also sort of been, in various ways, coming up against a sort of brutal inadequacy that, in an important way, transcends individual conscience and lays bare some pretty fucked up power dynamics in our society, where even when well-meaning people. In an individual sense, but then even as majorities in particular organizations, I'm not going to name, even when a majority of people set their mind to something simple and clear and unequivocal, a simple act of solidarity, in this case with people of color, they can be thrown off by a minority of people who have a very specific trait. And that trait is power, money and power. And all of a sudden, an organization that a few weeks ago made a very strong, or let's not say strong, let's say visible statement to support the movement for black lives is suddenly considering backtracking because like one or maybe two, I don't know the exact numbers. I, again, I'm not a part of the organization, but there's a serious discussion to sort of unendorse BLM to just be like, just kidding, guys. Sorry, because one or two Donors, big dog donors are concerned about reports that Black Lives Matter, and I'm sure you can you'll be able to tell where these reports probably originated. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Right. In the exact wording and intonation of Fox News and Breitbart and honestly everywhere else on the internet right now. Like over and over and over and over in certain circles. And in comments, responses to protests and things like the mural downtown, there's always one or sometimes more people responding to this movement with Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Like literally hundreds of times on Twitter, on Facebook. You just, it's it's everywhere now. It's it's the among a certain subset of people it is the de facto haymaker they level against this nationwide, worldwide, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, grassroots movement to discredit it. And now them chickens are coming home to roost. They've you know taken flight from the darkest recesses of the internet and cable news, and they are nesting in the boardrooms of local organizations and corporations. So yeah, y'all, I didn't need any help getting depressed because I just got them kinds of brain chemicals, the sorts of the ones that just do it every once in a while. But this pushed me over the edge in a big way because we'd just gotten done having this great conversation with Sean and we're talking about, you know, a little bit of self-flagellation, but mostly like uh, resolution, resolving to do better, to be better, to work at this shit harder, to have tough conversations among our kinfolk, fellow white people. And then you get the old kick in the nuts that, no matter how hard you as an individual work, and no matter how big your coalition of individuals becomes, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how in the majority, and we're not just talking about Black Lives Matter here, we're talking about Medicare for All. We're talking about other programs that are overwhelmingly popular, not just popular with the left, not just popular with Democrats, not just popular with moderates, popular with Republicans. Things that are overwhelmingly popular can be taken out at the knees by those in power, those with power, those with money. And when I say can be, I mean usually, almost always are. The forces of progress and the forces of reaction in the American context, in the Western context, in the sort of capitalist context, are almost always the same. Those looking for fairness, equality, equity, and those looking to preserve their advantage. And not to go off on too much of a tangent, but, like, think about this. Think about the way that that statement is constructed and what it means. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. I'm just going to keep doing that forever, maybe. (laughs) Uh, In the non-depression side of this conversation, I actually bought some new uh, podcasting gear, partially as a response to how poorly the... uh, audio went with sean and also because uh buying nerd shit is my love language (laughs) when i'm feeling depressed but it's got uh programmable uh sounds that i can add so i think i'm gonna add this sound to it so i can just like hit a button and it's kind of goofy right now but uh you can preload it with any sounds you want so i'm going to slowly start adding custom sounds into it to uh You know, get that really premium range effect, you know. Really brand this thing. But anyways, think about what it means to say Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. Marxism, actually one of the big criticisms about Marxism is that it ignores race. (laughs) So these critics of Black Lives Matter have actually kind of shown their ass. They're saying that the liberation of black people and people of color, natives, BIPOC folks, that emancipatory move is bad for their bottom line. It's bad for capital. If their criticism of Black Lives Matter is that it is a Marxist and anti capitalist organization, then they're saying that capitalism is bla- bad for black people. They're admitting to it. And that's the main reason I think we need solidarity among all of. The people who don't have power in this country because we know that it's going to take more than 10 more than a hundred more than a thousand it's probably going to take millions of people standing up against this kind of power to finally topple it i was mentioning a second ago there's this recurring squabble on the left that pits the anti-racists against the anti-capitalists people who are accused of being race reductionists, people who are focused only on racism uh, versus people who are class reductionists, people who are only focused on the class impacts of capitalism. And it's actually a massive problem in my mind that people who should be natural allies are at each other's throats because of priorities or perceived priorities about how and who to emancipate first. It's like we got to smash racism. It's like no, we got to smash capitalism and and then patriarchy obviously too is in there. And the argument gets set up as if those are different things. When in fact, and that's the beauty of this profoundly stupid moment we're having on Twitter and Facebook and Fox News and Breitbart and now, you know, in our literal boardrooms in Spokane, Washington, Black Lives Matter as a Marxist organization is showing us that those in power think there's no distinction to be drawn here. The fight against racism is the same as the fight against poverty. It's the same as the fight against class. It's the same as the fight against patriarchy, or at least the forces of capitalist reaction against all of those things think they're fighting similar forces. So I don't know, maybe we should team up. (laughs) So this isn't like a well thought out argument or anything yet but it's what's been on my mind one of the things that's been hanging this episode up is after having had this incredible conversation with sean vestal you take a look around and all of a sudden it seems like well maybe individual work is not adequate it's necessary but not sufficient to achieving the emancipation we're all after a quick illustrative analogy would be like don't stop recycling and doing what you can personally to save the environment but also maybe protest pipelines and go support, you know, the no dapple movement. And then on top of that, if you really want to impact fossil fuels, maybe we defund the military because the U S military is the single biggest polluter on earth. I was just listening to a podcast with Bill McKibben, who's one of the huge names in the environmental movement. He was talking about how he used to write books when he was younger and he still does, but he has gotten more into activism because he thought in his naivete as a as a younger person that it was about winning an argument when in effect it's, this is all going to be about building power. And the only way that folks like us are going to be able to build power is through numbers. We're going to have to fight the massively well-funded forces of reaction with an equal amount of people power. Anyways, I'm still formulating that argument. I'll probably unpack it more in part two of this because we got another one, long one coming up. But as you're listening to this, as you're listening to, to people sort of come to terms with our individual responsibilities in this moment to our fellow man. Also be thinking about this larger structural problem that we've got to fight through and the sort of action it's going to take from all of us to fight back. All right. Pep talk over. Sorry, I got depressed but we're fighting a world historic battle here and we don't have all the answers, but at least now the struggle will have sound effects and we can start with some good ass conversations, like this one. All right, I'm Luke Baumgarten and this is Range. After the break, Sean Vestal. Episode 12, (sighs) white people. Sean Vestal, thanks for coming on Range. Uh, I last talked to you at the school that's near my house where you happened to be playing catch with your son, and I was playing fetch with my dog children, yeah. and <laughs> both of our respective uh, broods were staring at us the whole time, just like, hey, hey, Dad, can you throw the ball yeah. for me? <laughs> right. I've wanted to have you on the, the podcast since the beginning. Um for a number of reasons, just because you're such a, you, you spend your whole life or your whole work life thinking about Spokane and, and politics and the way we relate to each other. Um, and then you wrote a column that we'll talk about, I'm sure at length recently, that um, it seemed like a pretty good time to jump in. And luckily you, you made time, so I appreciate you. Well, thanks.
1: I'm, you know, I like what you're doing here and I'm happy to be a part of it. Yeah, I remember that, that day as well. <laughs> There have been some other th- recent things that I was kind of itching to talk to you about, and but it was like, yeah, I should right. I should be a father for, to my son for
0: <laughs> 45 minutes or so today. Well, um, I, I started getting into my usual show prep for this, and I kind of just decided I'm going to ask you one question to start with, and we'll just see where it goes. You wrote a column about white grievance backlash, and so I just wanted to start this by just asking you, how are white folks doing, Sean? Like are we okay? They
1: um we're we're hurting right now, Luke. <laughs> no, I don't even see, I mean, I could joke about this all day. It's but joking is how I express anger sometimes. And I'm yeah, I'm truth truthfully, I'm angry at a lot of what I hear from people and a lot of the response to So the column that you mentioned, I wrote it in response to this controversy over local Catholic Charities CEO, Rob McCann, who wrote a column in which he tried to take responsibility for where he stands in the moment as a white person, as a Catholic, as a Spokane resident, and in which he declared himself to be a racist and his church to be racist. And this, of course, led to this huge backlash from people, and the bishop gave him a pretty sharp scolding and slapped him down for it and in a way that I thought was pretty awful. I'm not a Catholic, but these things are being played out in the public sphere, and I thought what the bishop had to say about it was um, pretty similar to what a lot of people, mostly um, the the most conservative folks among us, uh, the way they frame their response to Black Lives Matter as a knee-jerk resistance to it, as a I think, a misidentification of what it really is, an intentional yeah. s- skewing of what it really is to make them seem like um, more like terrorists than they really are, or right. more dangerous or more radical than they really are. And it's all an argument that at the bottom of it, I think, is white fear, white grievance, white loss of control, you know, white defensiveness, um, and that that... That force is so powerful in our country, you know.
0: Yeah, well, and it we're used to seeing ourselves consciously or unconsciously, and because I've seen I've seen a little bit of what you talked about in your column in people that I think would consider themselves allies, like we, you know, there's been this whole. It's not just like the Karens that are calling, you know, the police on people. It's it's people who think of themselves as allies and who I even think you know black folks would consider allies. Centering themselves in the narrative and trying to and 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 in a way that the the people of color in my life have had to have like pretty conscious conversations to be like just the way you're framing even the questions you're asking right now is centering yourself in a way that we we aren't here for right now right. and I think that's been really tough yeah uh, <laughs> and and fascinating to think about you know like and that's why I kind of wanted to. The first few guests I had on were were people of color, um, just because I wanted to talk less in spaces like this. I mean, podcasts were literally, you know, it's it's like the uh, the water that middle aged white men swim in. So, you know, this feels <laughs> very natural to me. But yeah. it was like part of it was like let's center, uh, obviously center other folks. But one of the things I wanted to get back to, you mentioned that was so that has been fascinating about the Catholic charities thing is like, you're right. It's like, I'm, I'm not Catholic either. I went to a Catholic college. So I kind of see, I understand that world. And I have a lot of friends that are Catholic, but I don't really have a in, in that way. I don't have a dog in that hunt, but at the same time, Catholic charities and just the way that the social safety net works in America and in Spokane, that is a charity as a Catholic institution that has extreme, overarching public does public good in our city, but has an incredible amount of power, especially around homeless folks and, and the, and sort of the folks most in need. And so on the one hand, we don't have a dog in that home, but on the other hand, we really do. Cause I thought about one of the things you mentioned was that the, the Bishop, as he was, you know, slapping Rob McCann around said, why don't we talk about abortion in the black community? Right. Very, you know, very common among the responses I got from people
1: if you really cared if you really cared so there's the assumption that you don't really care about black lives you'd care about abortion
0: and if black people cared about their own lives they would care more about abortion
1: which even to put it that way reflects an incredible lack of awareness right of you know just what you know to be like a white patriarchal figure saying to black people here's what you should care about black lives matter like that's just atrocious. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it also, like, I actually don't know how much the diocese what the control a diocese has over Catholic charities, but you know, Rob McCann, I think I, I've heard some, you know, critiques of his leadership, but you know, the housing first stuff he's done has gotten, has housed more homeless people than any other project in Spokane. And he, in at least in the way that he framed his video, was very hard on sleeve about the own, the racism that he needs to deal with in his own heart and in the, you know, institutional racism that happens in the Catholic church. And so I was thinking like, if, if this controversy runs him out of town and Bishop Daly gets to, you know, has a hand in selecting somebody that's maybe more like him, maybe Catholic charities starts being the, you know, the anti planned parenthood as opposed to being the housing first, you know, charity in Spokane.
1: Well, that's, I hadn't really thought through to that eventuality. Um, that would be bad for the for the city. I mean, I don't. I can't be thorough in terms of how good or bad I think Rob's been at his job beyond just what Catholic Charities has done in the last ten years here. I think is the most important thing that we've been able to do for homeless people here. Um, there's they've gotten some help from the city government, but they're, sure. not, they're not getting much anymore, and it's. I think. I think almost all of it kind of flows from Rob's insistence that they're going to keep doing this. The last mayoral campaign was almost all about Catholic charities. Right. Very, very infrequently did it was it mentioned that way. But you know, housing first is the enemy of of our current mayor, basically. Right. And and when she, from the moment she started running, what you could hear was what's always been present in the local debate, which she kind of oversimplified to. Union Gospel Mission versus Catholic Charities. and Sure. Um, Union Gospel Mission is, they've publicly, you know, Phil Altmeyer, the head of it, has alt- publicly criticized Catholic Charities, called them uh, people who, uh, called their programs um, fuel for making a skid row, making right. skid rows. You know, I just think kind of astounding, really, to the, the amount of, criticism that, that the Catholic charities has taken from, um, other people in the, in the homeless game, you know, uh, and so it takes a special sort of person, I think, to kind of stick to the, stick to their guns and try to carry out what he's doing in the face of a lot of opposition, you know, and, and, and then beyond the opposition, just the, you know, lukewarm people, like, yeah. the, the people who don't care that much,
0: who aren't going to pick it up and push for it. Well, and so that, that was the controversy that sort of triggered the, the column, but you did a, a pretty interesting thing. It sort of starts off by just saying, my fellow white people, we have a terrible hearing problem. As millions of black Americans raise their voices about the, their reality in this country, too many of us simply don't hear. We have a terrible vision problem. Too many of us take but a glimpse of George Floyd's death under the knee of a dead-eyed cop brushing past the truths it tells while gobbling up wall-to-wall, quote-unquote, news of the chop, which was the autonomous zone that uh, was established in Seattle. I heard a ton about chop. Yeah, you're right. Images of peaceful protests flash before our eyes unseen while a picture of one burning Burger King imprints itself on our vision forever. We have a terrible speaking problem. Called upon by events to examine ourselves and our institutions and to speak up for our brothers and sisters of color, too many of us ask, what about me, though? What about me? Given that you wanted to talk about Rob McCann and Catholic charities, why did you start there? Well,
1: I don't know is the short answer. I mean, I don't <laughs> I had some sense of wanting to 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 start more broadly than just the bishop. And I had I have had some nagging sense that I wanted to touch on my own experience to some degree, and I've even thought a few times that I was going to write something about my own kind of whiteness, which I think is similar to a lot of Spokane whiteness. Yeah. And the problem that I think it is in America, which is the, the, the almost kind of segregated whiteness, like, yeah. you know, where you don't have any experience with all the various communities that make up our country. Yeah. And yet, despite that, you don't lack confidence. <laughs> in, in terms of having opinions about it. Yeah. And I think I was I think I had some of those attitudes myself as a 17 18 year old growing up in Idaho. I was taught by a history teacher who kind of said on the one hand you have racism and then on the other hand you have reverse racism. <laughs> and and so we had a day in class where we talked about whether reverse racism was just as bad as racism and to even frame it that way clearly is a distorted right. view of of things and um, I think about so many things in my own experience that were overtly racist, or at least were uh, the kind of slumber of the, of the unthinking beneficiary of white supremacy, you know? Yeah. That I wanted to think about that and write about that, but at the same time not be like, okay, here we are, the Black Lives Matter moment after George Floyd, and it's time for me to write about being white. Yeah. You know, and right. so I, anyway, I wanted to broaden it beyond just sure. the message. Uh, and I also, to be honest with you, I don't know rhetorically that I would put it exactly the same way Rob did. I, I'm not 100% sure what I think about um, the, the necessity or usefulness of being saying, like, I am a racist. Yeah. And I sincerely mean, I don't know. I'm not saying I don't think it's good, but I'm also, I'm on the fence about it a little bit. I mean, I think some of the language that Rob used in that that video, maybe I wouldn't put it that way. I don't know though. I mean, I don't, Yeah. I think that I think that statement, I am a racist is a very interesting one. And I think it does very interesting, important things. It, it also might not be productive in certain ways as well, in terms of the response that it, you know. Well, I mean I think we all I do I agree with the basic premise of it though. I don't think we can ignore that we're the beneficiaries of of a white supremacist system and yeah.
0: if we can't look at that straight
1: in the eye and believe it, then we can't ever get better, you know.
0: Well, and it's one of the things that's so tough is cuz whenever you start having these conversations it gets into at least my brain Well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it starts getting into questions of like the sort of rhetoric that happens on social media, maybe, or just rhetoric in general. But that's sort of how rhetoric is lived these days is on online. And because I, on the one hand, I, and Ginger post, my wife, who's um, half black, posted a pretty similar thing, said, I'm a racist, like, and talked about a very specific moment in our lives together because we were both it was when we had first started dating where she saw a black man at rockwood bakery which is one of those very um white suburban spaces in spokane and had a reaction that she couldn't control and that really has stuck with her to this day almost a decade probably more than a decade later actually and so on the one hand it's it takes a profound kind of guts to if if this is what racism is if we all agree to the definition then yeah we're racist. I'm racist. You know, ginger cop to being racist, Rob did. Um, but you're also not wrong. <laughs> like then rhetorically, one of the things that I saw when I posted about it, I was like, Holy shit, this is takes so many, so much guts. Like not just for any, for anybody to do this, but for a man of his stature, his place in the community, like he just didn't pull punches. And, and for me, actually, that's one of the things that I admired most about it is like, that was not a man concerned about his job. Yeah. when he was saying that I was like damn go off king like yeah. I trying to put myself in his position I don't know if I would have said it like that because maybe because I would have been a little bit more scared about economic realities than he clearly was in that moment so there's that then and and here's where we spend a lot of time like kvetching over the opinions or like the rhetorical strategies of like you know less than 5% of the people in my mentions, like, people were like, wow, that's amazing, it's incredible, holy cow, a bunch of people didn't comment. But then a couple people were like, well, if he's a racist, then he should resign immediately. And then you go to that person's page, and that person is the person making the, if you really cared about black lives, you'd care about abortion comments. And so then the weird part of me that was a philosophy major is like, oh, that's not the right argument to make to get those people. And then the part of me that's lived online for a decade has to punch that other part of me. It's like, you're never going to get those people. Right. So I don't know. I'm just kind of like rambling at this point, but I I do think about how the, the, we're in the middle of a culture war right now that, and if you think about the culture wars, like as an actual war, I think that in this moment we've pushed further into quote unquote enemy lines than in my lifetime. Right. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're BLM, these, these, the, the discourse that's happened in the wake of George Floyd, and I think maybe not necessarily catalyzed, but like allowed by the space people have just sitting in their couches because of the coronavirus, it has allowed us to push, take more quote-unquote territory in this war than in, I've ever seen in my life. And maybe part of my own discomfort is that I partially get to live in that enemy territory as a fucking white guy, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I... Th- I agree with you and I hope that that continues
1: to be the case and I also think a lot of what we're talking about here, which is a lot of what I spend my time thinking about when it comes to racism is about white, about white people's response to to racism yeah yes. is um, is a mental argument that I can't stop having with myself as an 18 year old kid in Idaho and with that culture that I'm from and that I'm a part of, and that is a shrinking part of this country. Yeah. And that because of Trump and because of all the perverse, the perverse parts of the system that allowed him to become president and to hold power and to control a vastly outsized part of the debate than he would if it were just reflective of the breakdown of the population. Right. You know, with in the media world, he has a vastly outsized megaphone from right. Fox and the right-wing news media, and then just general bullshit that people believe. Yeah, um, and and the electoral college and all that stuff. So I think I think the middle and the mainstream is getting better in these ways, and that it sometimes doesn't seem as much like it because of the amplification of white grievance minority voices. basically, right. You know, the the I am not a racist question is I think it's also problematic because you can find yourself in the weeds of the question that is it's hard to have a conversation about the reality of racism in America right now. If you know much about it and the history, if that's where you got to go.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Well, I never burned a cross. Therefore, I'm not a racist. Right. Well, that's such a deep lack of understanding that it's like you said. It's just a gulf that's not worth crossing. Maybe.
0: Yeah, it does. Like, and
1: maybe that's a reason that that's okay to use that phrase. Then maybe I've just talked to myself in a circle here. <laughs> maybe there's yeah. no reason to avoid it. If the if the if the potential problem with it is that
0: people who already don't understand don't understand it. Well, so then what is what is what's your role and maybe my role in that milieu being then? If you're the guy that gets paid to write three weekly columns. Yeah as a white person who grew up in Southern Idaho for a mostly white audience during this time, like maybe just talk through how you're feeling your way through that conversation, maybe.
1: Well, I think it's important for me to look at my own failures, right? Not to defend myself, but to try to look at ways that I can be better and to try to be cognizant of being. I mean, I'm not the only person who writes opinion, but I have a a rare position in the city and it's not one that's earned or deserved, you know, it's one that I've gotten. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I'm not saying I don't want it or, or think that I sometimes do it well, but I, it's not like if you were to pick out of the 500,000 people who get to have a voice three times a week, I'm I'm like the one, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just that there's a, like, it's part of a system that used to have more voices in it. Um, right. Those voices were white voices, but you know, yeah. and, and as, as the paper shrunk, you know, I'm kind of the only one doing this, this thing anymore. Right. It's like journalistic Hunger Games kind of. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but it also means that a, a, a range of voices that was already problematically all white is now like all white and all <laughs> me, right? And um, so my thinking is that I have often written about race and the way I write about race is from the right position the correct, the correct position, position about race yeah. expressing the proper attitudes about race and basically dealing with it the way so many of us do which is um, it's a question that we're called upon to have the right attitude about and once we have shown that we have that right attitude about we wash our hands of it yeah you know and i think i'm definitely that way there're definitely times i'm wrestling with say police issues yeah and i don't go into race or I don't go much into race. The reason being, well, there's a lot to wrestle with there and I'm not going to go all the way into that subject partly because I don't know why partly, partly because I'm avoiding one part of that that's stickier and more complex and harder to unpack than just, um, a a more overall view of the cops and oversight and, the, the, you know, the things that all have real direct bearing on race and and racism and policing. But I don't, I touch on it kind of lightly or in passing sometimes. Hmm. I also think, given my voice is where it is, that um, I should um, elevate other voices, like right. you're talking about with your podcast, more than I do. And th- those are things I've thought about before, and part of the columnist game is Writing your own thoughts and and so yeah I, you know that's the default and that's the uh, the tide of resistance maybe it just into this but yeah like I interviewed somebody today I'm writing a column following up that column because I heard from a lot of people who are like well what can I do to be a better ally these are I mean I heard. In response to that column, I have to say I got overwhelmed with positive responses, and I did That's not awesome. get overwhelmed with negative responses. So sometimes I think, well, if I don't hear much criticism, how do I read that? And yeah, I went to the editor, and he said he got fewer than ten um, emails of complaint about that. So, um, and I probably got ten or twenty, but yeah. but maybe eighty or hundred positive ones. Wow. And a lot of people like, well, what should I do if I have the right? And for one thing, I'm not the person who can answer that question, but I can reach out to people <laughs> and yeah. say, what do you think? What do you think those of us who want to do more than just kind of signal our opinions um, can and
0: should do? So who would you talk to for the call?
1: Well, I talked to Roberta Wilburn, dean of something at Whitworth. But okay. She, yeah, totally. Oh, oh, she's, she's been a member of the faculty. She, she had just reached out to me because she's doing a class on how to be an ally. And, um, so we had a conversation, but I'm also talking to some other folks who are, who I haven't spoken to yet. So Sandy Williams and I are going to talk and that's awesome. You know, Walter
0: Kendricks. Yeah. So, okay. Maybe I want to dive into some waters that I'm not totally comfortable with diving into, uh, and see how you feel. Like I've gotten dangerously close to like unfriending family members over some of this stuff. Um, and just, and people from high school. So I, I, grew up, um, in a not dissimilar place from where you grew up in Southern Idaho, except it was North Spokane County. Like, um, And I grew up in a multiracial family um, with a brother who has told me in the past that he has never lived a single day in Spokane not feeling his Mexican heritage when he walks into any place with any people um, as a result of conversations that I ha- I've had with like my mom specifically, she told me stories about how people would get up from where, like when they would come to watch a basketball game that I was in, I played basketball for the Riverside Rams. Uh, and when they would co- come into a home game where my mother was a teacher's aide at the elementary, she was, she recently got an AA uh, at the falls. And when I posted about it, oh, yeah, I saw that. dozens, like maybe a hundred people that, were like near my age whose life she touched over the years gave like congratulated her this beloved woman at a home game people would stand up and move away from (laughs) my mom and my brother when they would sit down at games not a lot of people but kind of like you were saying like we focus on even even in the face of overwhelming support for something you focus on the negative because it's it's fucking traumatic yeah Uh, so that you know made me cry like a baby cuz i wasn't I, and i think that's something i don't i don't think i forgot i think i she never told me that until yeah. just a few weeks ago and um so anyways i'm trying to figure out how to and at what level to sort of call in the people i grew up around and including members of my family but you know folks that i'm still connected with that i that i and this is where it's like i'm going to say i i th- I think they're good people, um, but the way they behave online or, or whatever makes me sort of question it now at, at times. So it's like, and since we're in the position we're in, like what what duty do we owe everyone else to go into those spaces and try to like make shit better?
1: Well... That's a hard question for me because it challenges my desire not to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. To put it that way. Totally. <laughs> like, like, and and I think that that discomfort is, um, I, I should be wary of it because I, I might just think of it as, well, I, I write my arguments and I make my arguments and that's... And that's what I contribute. That's what I do. Yeah. It's a lot easier to just throw it off the cliff and see where it lands than to sit and engage with another person about it. And in particular, it's hard for me to do it in a way that's not destructive and unproductive. I find, and I've gotten worse and worse about this. I've gotten worse about it with the Trump era. Um, a feeling that I have that I have kind of lost faith in something that I don't know how to make sense of just yet. Mm -hmm. The the idea that underlied a lot of journalism that I spend my whole life doing. I'm now not so sure I believe in it at all, you know, like ideas of sort of balancing and always, you know, I, I, and, and the value of some sort of a civil discussion broken along some, Kind of binary um, right in which everybody is treated as a good faith um, participant participant and a reluctance to wipe to to write off a whole portion of the of the system yeah a, to a whole slice of the of the country and I find it almost impossible to have that attitude anymore and then I think this is an engine for kind of keeping white privilege alive and and flaming is not wanting to have uncomfortable conversations with people close to us.
0: Yeah. Is it, it's, I think it's probably fair to say that like one of the most under talked about parts of white privilege is the ability to just be like, Ooh, yuck. That makes me feel bad. Oh, well I don't really have to worry about it. Yeah. So like, Oh yeah. The conversation you're talking about and I, I'm trying to think through like pretty, Honestly, how many times I've been like, I should speak up, and then I'm like, oh, but I, no, I, I won't, or mm-hmm. I, not, not that I won't, but it's, it's like, I, I have the luxury of being able to, because it's not like I don't worry about it. It's not like I, I have a world class sense of guilt about things. It's not like I'm not. It's not like I get to just be like, go live a life of, uh, ignor you know, ignorant bliss about this, because it'll eat me up. But I can I can sort of manage to not have an uncomfortable conversation if I want. Yeah. And I'll feel a little pang of guilt every time it comes up. But that's one of the – I think that's one of the more – there's the white privilege that's very overt, the white privilege that has allowed me to sort of get where I've gotten in this world as a white man. But there's this other part that doesn't get talked about very much where it's just like if every conversation a person of color chooses not to have – you know there's a there's a level of danger in the world that goes unchecked for their their specific their specific person right like and all that danger all that trauma that's all something that we don't really have to deal with right so we can always feel guilty about it but we can f- not have the conversations and i think for me
1: the learning and the growing that I've done, and I presume that the learning and the growing that I will do, often comes through an awakening of uh, of that uh, of the reality of that for people of color. So, Tanahisi Coates, between the world and me. Yeah. Am I saying that right? I think so. Yeah, between the world and me. Anyway, yeah. um, for me, that was I just felt like I learned so much about it. And it wasn't necessarily inform- about race in America. And it wasn't information so much as it was the way he talked about the body, the the way that the the black body is controlled <laughs> by the state and has been over years. And the way that he now looks at his son, his sons, I think, through that lens um, at the time that I had a son and wouldn't, Never and know that I will never, I don't have to worry about it with him, you right? Know? Um, and that's somewhat similar to the reaction I had, like the Tamir Rice case. That case hit me hard because I grew up playing with BB guns, of course. That's a kid playing with a BB gun, yes. And if you try to lay that experience over my own experience, white America would just go completely ape shit if some kid playing with a BB gun on a farm in Idaho at a park in Idaho got killed by a trigger happy cop One. i mean and the and the response to that from too many in the in the white world is well they just assume he's a he should have complied more or something right it's a kid playing with a BB gun and the differences that i can expect from my own life and that that kid had in his life, I mean, are just undeniable.
0: One, well, getting a BB gun as like a seven, eight year old kid was, was more than just a gift. It was a rite of passage. Yeah. At least for me, it was that my yeah. dad specifically believed I was a mature enough person because it's, you know, it's a BB gun, but it's still a weapon, right? right. And, yeah. and you know, one of the things that you, in the sort of less hysterical Uh, realms of gun culture are guns are, you know, tools, they're very dangerous, they need to be treated with respect, but they're also just about the coolest damn thing that you have in your life, right? And so as a young person, a kid, when you get a BB gun as a gift, it's literally a rite of passage in rural America, or at least it was for me. And so, thinking about just the tremendous... And you're right, I never... I was worried, or I was taught to fear hurting someone else with that gun. I was not taught to worry about dying because I was using it. And some, the wrong person might see me and call the cops. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's, um,
1: I think it's those kind of connections and we can somehow find the little wormholes from our life to the lives of others. And then think about it in a new way that maybe that can be the framework of uh, productive conversations, you yeah. Know? Right. Like, I oftentimes think about my sister in high school and her friends, and they used to say, they used to use the term Mexican as a kind of a slur for, you know, low low rent or,
0: hmm.
1: you know, cheap or whatever. Yeah. She she was dating a, a boy whose family was from Mexico. Wow. I mean, he's not Mexican because he's an American, but. Right. And that she didn't realize what was problematic about that. And that goes back years ago. And my sister is a good hearted person now. And and she was just being a stupid kid who was grew up in this stew where that kind of thing was, nobody told her not to do it, I guess, until I did. And then she thought I was being silly about it. Right. But I was like, yeah, you know, your boyfriend, he's not going (laughs) to like that. Right. Like if you can't think of it any other way. Yeah. Right. Right. uh, there's a degree to which it's just unconsidered. Yeah. Um, when you're. When you you just don't have enough diverse experiences in your life that um, you you can't even extend the empathy to under to try and understand them.
0: Yeah. Uh, wh- so, a tough conversation I had ended up kind of at an impasse, and I don't know what to, like I you know sort of had the conversation and kept having the conversation until it sort of worked, worked itself in circles two or three times. And then we sort of did an agree to disagree. It was a family member. So it was an agree to disagree. I still love you. I'm going to see you at the holidays if not sooner. And, and I don't know. And so that's like one, that's like further than I've gone in the past with family anyways. So I felt good but I didn't feel good because it didn't come to the sort of resolution that I yeah. wanted. It, did you was this in person or uh, It wasn't. Online? No, it was yeah. they don't live here anymore uh so it was on direct message stuff. Um and so maybe that's part of it too. Maybe I feel a little bit of like cowardice about that, but I'm also better, I don't know, whatever in the written word. I'm a writer for God's sake, you know, whatever. But well, th- I've
1: stopped. I just have stopped. Facebook, other than a little bit, you know, in and out. I certainly don't get into back and forth conversations, mostly just because I don't, I don't want to. It's not just race. It's, it's all of in it. In general, I just yeah. don't really want to. And then I do that on Twitter, but all I do on Twitter is, um, I was going to say argue, but it's not even that, just tweet insults. You know, I mean, (laughs) what are you doing? Twitter, try to win the insult battle. It's called,
0: yeah, it's called dunking.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. And then, um, I don't feel great about that, but I also don't want to engage in a 50 tweet. Some of that I've done, you know, I've done a little bit of back and forth. It's hard. You can't say enough there, but I also don't want to take the time to say enough either in that forum. So it's part, I'm not blaming it at all on the forum, but I, um,
0: so I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a, it was it was a it was a one on one message. It wasn't like back and forth in a post. Yeah. But and it just kind of got to a point where it was not. If it would have been, I if I would have been having that conversation on the phone, I would have just gotten really angry earlier, or I would have shown my anger because I was fuming. Yeah. But still trying to be like, okay, deep breath, talk through this, try to explain. And and it was an attempt at not like outlogicking a person. I wasn't like fact facts don't care about your feelings. This person. I was saying. We have a multiracial family. the things that you're saying about George Floyd being a person who was you know previously justice involved whatever you're saying he does he may or may not have done a robbery twenty years ago, and therefore that was a complicated that was that is a partially extenuating circumstance to him maybe passing a bad20 dollar bill and then getting choked to death for nine minutes. think about put yourself in the shoes of our family members who are going to maybe, and I I don't know how they're going to interpret it, but the moment I saw him saying that, I was like, if I was my brother, I would say, I would say this person doesn't give a shit if I live or die, or if I have ever done anything other than be absolutely perfect in my life, I will have deserved to die slowly on a street corner somewhere. Right. And it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't, it didn't fucking work. And and what I did immediately after that it was I called, like a, like, a little baby. I called my mom and just started bawling on the phone to her. Like, I don't know what to do. So, and I still yeah. don't know what to do. And that's right. why, like, because I, I, I think you're probably right that this, this corner of the world is shrinking. But right now it feels, it's in power. Right. <laughs> it feels... Right. Dangerously close to being in power again. I don't. I'm not going to look at polls until November because fool me once, shame on them. Fool me twice, shame on me. And I think I
1: think there's truth to the fact that people who are going to vote for Trump, a lot of them know are embarrassed that they're going to do it, and so I think the polls might be. I hope not, but I, I,
0: you know, we, you know, Nate Silver was an absolute clairvoyant in the Obama era, and he's been nothing but wrong ever since then. So the best poll. The best poll analyzers have no idea what to do right now. So we can't remember
1: that stupid. (laughs) Yeah. All I would do is look at the New York Times, see the thing, be like, all right, we're good. All right.
0: God, 99.5% chance of. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then my mom, and here's where actually, that's where I learned the story about the basketball game was that conversation with my mom. And so I, I sit here feeling like, Everything I've tried to do, you know, like a person to person thing, even if it's online, it's still, it is person to person. It feels ineffectual except, and that's what I actually, I focus on that one really failed conversation. But then I have to remember that it led to a really powerful conversation where at the end I said, next time you talk to them, please, please mention something. And she said she would. But I don't know, maybe it's like, that's, maybe that's how the world changes. You, you have some really uncomfortable, they're all uncomfortable conversations. I didn't, I, I was, that's a conversation I'd been sort of, you know, when, back when I was still the Inlander, I wrote a story about my brother's experience as part of a, a package on, on race in Spokane specifically. And, and we had some pretty somewhat tough family conversations at that point because my parents felt like they'd failed my brother. By not, you know, not knowing how to sort of help him navigate the world that they had adopted him into. He's from Mexico. They adopted him, right? Out of a place of, like, pure love, whatever. And, but that was a decade ago, almost. And so this was, like, a conversation that seemed like it was a long time coming. And, and I felt like I didn't have any other choice. It just happened. Like, I, I was I like, I don't know how to, what to do next, except just call my mom. And that ended up being a really, really good conversation. And I hope that that maybe spurs other conversations or even if it just means that like, you know, my brother feels a little bit more heard in the long run. I don't I know. know. Cause the, like the last thing you want to do, like I, I actually haven't talked to my brother about this cause I don't want him to feel like, oh, my big brother's just checking in with me every time racism happens on the news. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. like that, that fucking feels dehumanizing too. Yeah. You know, I don't know.
1: Well, it does sound to me like, like a valuable conversation. And I think the person in your life that you didn't get through to, maybe you might've gotten through to a little bit, or at least made def have to recognize what it means to you as a specific person in their life, rather than a general thing on the news that they might respond to. And that... Maybe those are the kind. That maybe that's all that's on a uh, that's possible. You know, in yeah. some in some interactions, it's, is yeah. to be seen and to be taken seriously. Yeah. Rather than, and I think it's harder. You know, we see it everywhere you look. Uh, marriage equality. Everywhere you look, the evolution comes in people's personal lives. It, it comes really when. Oh, I've been against gay marriage all my life, but now my son wants to marry an, uh, another man. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change now. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I give you credit for that. We, I just avoid stuff. I had some intense arguments with my stepfather over w- what now seem like relatively minor racial things that would come up back yeah. in the day, like who was it that. Cheers Strom Thurmond at some event. Right. Is it Tom Delay or something like that? And and he dad is my stepdad is like, well, I don't see why that's such a big deal. And I just <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a good, you know, I just went off on him, you know. And so now he knows and I know that we're not talking about that issue anymore. Yeah. And I don't think he and I could get get very thriving. close. Yeah. But right. but I don't try, I will say, and we mostly keep the peace. In my extended family by, you know, there's one text thread that we make jokes about Trump on, and there's another one that we don't. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they have
0: different people on, yeah. Uh, I, d- I do wonder, though, like if, you know, you mentioned something about, well, so the, like, the, the rhetorical strategy of saying if you really cared about black lives, you should care more about abortion. I hear that all the time. My My buddy actually just sent me an email or a text posting showing that like a member of the spokane police force used that comment on a, on a thing that. recently uh, so that's the words getting around that's a rhetorical strategy that's getting around and I guess maybe it's like
1: it's been a common one in other things too I would say
0: fair um, yeah yeah, so I guess the question is like if and this is this is maybe where it turn, the question turns back to to journalism it's like if we Cease to have, and maybe there never was a public square. Maybe there never was an actual public square that everybody in Spokane could be a part of oh, and right. a discourse where you know, because maybe because largely the things we used to just you know talk about in those public squares weren't open to certain classes of people and certain races of people, right? right? So maybe we were all just sort of fiddling about our own bullshit. But the way that we it seems to have split into separate discourses how do we bridge that gap cuz like i have a ton of guilt and i'm not talking about race stuff right now i'm more f- talking about like things like you know progressive politics like medicare for all and stuff like i've had a lot of really productive conversations with my you know the people that have been written off by let's say the democratic party for 20 or 30 years that grew up in places like me about around stuff like wouldn't your life have been easier if you didn't have to pay so much to send your kids to college wouldn't your life have been a little bit easier if, you know, every time Jimmy felt like step, you know, stepped on a pitchfork, you know, you didn't have to pay out of pocket because you're a self-employed farmer or a farm laborer, even worse. Right. And you know, you, you didn't have medical health insurance. Right. I just, I don't, it's, it's a weird line to walk. And I feel like maybe people like you and I, or maybe just me, like I, if, if anybody's going to cross those gaps, it has to be people like us. So don't we have a fucking duty to do it, is my question. And that's the question I'm, I'm asking myself every day.
1: Uh, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that, well, I'll just, for myself, that I do. And I don't meet that obligation even a little bit, I would say. Yeah. And that's something that I'm thinking about a lot in the last few years that I write that off that I write it off completely that my attitude towards so many things right now is just fuck that and yeah i'm not going to get down into the mud and well i'm going to get down into the mud i wish i could say i wasn't going to get down into the mud i am going to get down into the mud but i'm not going to i'm not going to have a real i wish i could be a more peaceful minded person could <laughs> come out of that conversation, like I think about people like, uh, I can't think of an example now, but someone, you know, people who are just peacemakers and they, they strategize those conversations to think, I'm going to just going to try to make my point and I'm not going to rise to the bait. Yeah. I'm going to just try to make it as productive as possible toward what my goal is here in this moment. And I i just want to fight in those moments is uh, and and i i wish that weren't true and i am trying to be better about it but um i think that i think there is a responsibility to try to be to try to mend that gap and i, I but i can't say that i have taken it up very well right there are some there are some cases there are some Individuals that I write back and forth with after my columns, um, and we we do okay. We kind of give each other our opinions, and we don't. But I'd have to give those people more credit than myself because mm. if they came harder, I give it right back. You know, and I. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I. I um, Yeah, I don't know, and the the idea of the public square, I think, this goes back to something we had a brief interaction about on Twitter a while ago about fact checking. Oh yeah, about the fact check as a sort of a expression of a model that that historically, you know, kind of uh, favors the the white establishment. I think that's also true of. The, the, the underlying idea of journalism, which is yeah. both sides, right? Just that idea, both sides. Like, you yeah. get two, you're going to get the, all two sides it, you know. <laughs> but, and that, that both sides are more or less equal and that, that, that if you frame everything um, on the one hand, on the other hand, yeah. you know, right.
0: um, that, that you've kind of done your job you know how complex it would make every story if there was a third hand, you know, it would be impossible. You couldn't do newspapers would have to be hundreds of pages long every day.
1: I mean, I just, uh, and so the public square obviously was limited, right? It's always been limited and it's still limited. I think it's less limited than it used to be. And I think it's at a period of rapid expansion, I hope anyway. And I think social media has something to do with that. And I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable, um, And, uh, but I do think that that's, it's changing to a degree, but it isn't one square anymore. You know, it's not, it's it's not one place. And if that were going to survive, then it would, it would take some, um, some kind of peacemaking mediating kinds of kinds of voices, I guess. Yeah. What I love more than anything is trying to say something as pungently, as punchily as possible, you know, as sharply as I can. And you have to give that up if you want to mend fences.
0: A hundred percent, because it's not clear that white people are really doing an adequate job of being a part of this movement. To the extent to which we actually step up and become, you know, allies in this fight, it is gonna it's gonna take some, you know, it's gonna take bomb hurlers and it's gonna take peacemakers to some extent, I think. And so because I was not pulling punches. I was trying to argue rhetorically in, in such a way of like, I know it, just like calling this person a racist is not going to be effective, even though what I think they're doing is racist. I am going to try to, but I'm still trying to win an argument. It yeah. wasn't like, it's just because I was tunneling under their walls rather than like hit, shooting a cannon at it didn't mean that I was trying, not to try to get behind, under the walls, right. you know? Yeah. Um, no, and I didn't mean to suggest that. I feel like that,
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just think about this a lot, like about what do you give up when you, you know, the part of me that wants to call bullshit on everything. Yeah. A very large part of me. (laughs) Sometimes I'm calling it when it isn't actually (laughs) bullshit, (laughs) but I'm still calling it. Um, But that part is in in war with uh, the part of me that wants to be, I don't know what, that, that wants to not just be riling people up as a media thing. Yeah, like right. that. there's a guy used to be on the radio here conservative guy would invite me to come on his show and I never wanted to and yeah. he would always say um hey man look my audience and your audience together is enough for everybody to hate and love but they'll pay attention no matter what you know and yeah. I thought I don't want any part of that that is not what I'm doing I'm not at yeah. all trying to just get attention it's not about ratings of yeah. any kind so anyway I, I'm I, tr- I need to think more about this question beyond the satisfaction of writing a column, I guess, is what, Yeah, I, I feel like I've done something when I write a column. And I haven't, I, I, and I, I have done something, right? But I mean, it's one of the things that I think good, open-hearted, open-minded white people are susceptible to, and I certainly am as the, I think of it as the to kill a mockingbird dynamic, you know, which wow. is I read that book and I had the right attitudes about that. And we're kind of done with this now, right? we fixed it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Atticus fixed it and now we yeah, we white people can just move on and not worry about this and I think we constantly encounter race as a brief thing that we resolve for ourselves in some way. Yeah. So that might be protesting even a few times, protesting a few times that could and that steam goes away, yeah. you know, or um, whatever it is. I one of the things in the newspaper that I work at, which has had very few people of color in the time that I've worked there, even going back to when the staff was quite large, yeah, right. um, is a New, Year, uh, New Year's Day, Martin Luther King Day rolls around, and um, we do something on race, you know? Yeah. And uh, sometimes it is so ill thought out, so little considered beforehand, that it actually is assigned to somebody In my experience, I've been assigned to do a story on race for Martin Luther King Day. I'm like, oh, so just write something about race, you know? (laughs) But a few years ago, uh, I I might have even volunteered to do this. um, Walter Kendricks at Morningstar Baptist, they were having a Martin Luther King Day, a week of Martin Luther King Day services, and they were in conjunction with the last sort of Black Lives Matter all oh, right um push that, okay. that was uh the ferguson after yeah after ferguson after michael brown so um i met so a group of pastors was all going to they were all going to share the 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 stage that day and um i met with them in the back room and we were going to talk about martin luther king and i was going to write the annual martin luther king day story for the newspaper yeah. that employs no black people and right uh um some of the people there just weren't having it that day, and it was one of the most uncomfortable afternoons of my life. And I'm blanking now on the young man's name, but there's a father and son. I think they're a father and son, or hmm. it's a uh, father-in-law and son okay. that are pastors at Calvary. Okay. Um, and this the, the younger man was somebody who wanted to talk to me about the FBI and uh, Martin Luther King and whether they had killed him or no. That that. That they had killed him, him and and I was like, I don't, I don't know enough about that. I'm not saying it's not. I don't know. I just don't know anything about it. And anyway, it just was. It became profoundly uncomfortable because he just kept being like, "So what are you doing? Like you're coming out here?" I mean, he kind of just saw saw this for the bullshit that it was. Yeah. And instead of giving me some good quotes about Martin Luther King and what a what a great figure he was, uh, he was challenging. what I was doing in that moment. And my response was defensiveness, especially at first, a kind of, I could feel myself being like, I would never have said this, but I could feel in myself, hey, I'm here to do a good thing. And you're giving me this. That was my first thought was, you're not being fair to me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm here to write a story. And if you start to carry out that, that line of thought—you wind up in a direct, overtly racist place. Yeah, I'm here as a white person to do this for you, and why aren't you appreciative? Right. I would never say that, but that's where my thoughts were leading me in that moment. And it was for all the things that day that were hard for me to swallow. That one was one of the hardest. Yeah. Was realizing what my response was made of there. Yeah. And they were, and and they were like, "How many black people work at your newspaper?" And I was like in the newsroom right now, that's a zero. zero. It's a yeah. big zero. And, um, I, uh... it, the, you know, the other thing is though, they stayed in that room with me and gave me some credit. I'm not saying how much credit I think I should get, but at that moment I felt like I should have gotten a lot of credit. I was very, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, this white person's like, what about me thing? Yeah. I was feeling it big time. They gave me credit for sitting in there and taking it. And, uh, And then they had me, and then I went to that service, and I had not been to Morningstar before, and it was um, a lot of music, a lot of... Very unlike any church experience I've had. Yeah, Yeah. And it was a great day, and a profoundly uncomfortable day.
0: I, uh, a fine art professor, his name's Carl Richardson, I've talked about him before on this thing. Carl is an incredibly large human being. He's a, he's a bodybuilder and in both him and in my wife, I've seen among two sort of black people that are very close to me, a profound shift using words like rage. Like he was talking about being uncomfortable with his own anger, getting comfortable with his own anger because he said, I think that's the only way things are going to change. And so it strikes me that you were back in this room at a very similar time, four years in the past, among people, because again, and this is probably something that's structurally fucked up about, that we don't even, we're at an hour and 11 minutes, we should be wrapping it up. I can feel us, we could go on for another two hours. Like, black leaders in this town, and I think in America, get tokenized in such a way that, and as a spiritual leader, black pastors get brought in to sort of do and I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in terms that are, like, I think appropriately racist because they kind of are. It's like you're gonna be our Desmond Tutu for a while. Mm-hmm. You're going to be our Martin Luther King for a while. Somebody just threw a brick through a window. We got to get the black guy to say that violence isn't the answer. Right. Sort of a thing. And so, if, and that's I I wrote that story about smart justice in 2012. It wasn't even really about race. It was about the changes that the ju- that Brian Beggs was proposing to the justice system. I went looking for leaders in the black community. And nobody could point me to anybody except a pastor at that time. Now, like Sandy Williams has stepped up. There are a lot of like non-ecclesiastical leaders that have stepped up in in the last eight years, but like I was going around again, my incredibly white newsroom and being like, who do I talk to about like, I'm seeing that black men are 12 times more likely to get uh, arrested than white men in the system and I was even asking people like Brian, like, who do I talk to in the black community to get that voice? And it was all pastors. And we know how what we expect culturally of pastors, right, to be peacemakers. <laughs> and so, one, I got little chills on the back of my neck when you were talking about this, like being backstage before they're probably about to come out and talk about this leader who is famously nonviolent and wanting to be like, I don't know, I can only imagine what that must have been like. It was It was good for me, you know. I wish it had happened
1: 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, I wish I'd... I mean, it was good for me partly because they were good to me about the way they did it, too. Yeah. Like, they weren't pulling any punches. They were making it clear, especially this this younger man, powerfully arguing what he had to say and challenging what I was up to in ways that that, uh, should not have been such an awakening for me, but, but were, and I, and you know, my, that's just been the story of my race. You know, I was, when I was a teenager, I think I was just racist. I would say, I mean, I wouldn't have said I was racist, but I did things that are clearly, um, just ignorant. You know, I would, I, I might've said, well, I never owned a slave and, uh, black people today have never been slaves. So right. why is, you know, I was very susceptible to this is all over with. And then as I evolved, I evolved into a time where I, I mean, I would, I've never been someone who told racist jokes, but yeah, there was a time when I would say racially insensitive things in the same way that, um, Stephen Colbert might have. Yeah. I don't, do you remember the thing with Colbert and the, he did a Chinese thing that was, yeah. And, and, I do think that he was making fun of racism. I think his intention was well, to it's, make it's fun of it's happening right now
0: with like Tina Fey and stuff as well, right? Yeah. With thirty, like thirty, like they've taken certain Thirty Rock episodes off the air that were yeah. sort of doing blackface. But that's that's a huge to this day conversation in comedy around like, and it's it started with Dave Chappelle completely torpedoing his own Comedy Central contracts. He was like, "I'm making fun of racists, but I'm worried that oh, racists." Yeah don't realize that I'm making fun of them sort of thing. Yeah, That makes me think of Eddie Murphy, you know, and raw. And
1: being a kid with my other white friends doing Eddie Murphy routines.
0: Absolutely.
1: And what was funny in those was not just what was funny independent of race, but the mannerisms. And he was, he could do it much different for us to do it. Right. Yeah. All of that. Very heightened cultural kind of uh, language. And uh, we were just laughing at black people, I think is what we were doing. I don't think we would have said that that's what we were doing, but listen to the way this guy talks about starting a fire. And we're not, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, Eddie Murphy and the way we responded to Eddie Murphy when I was a kid, it's not the way we responded to, say, Richard Pryor. I don't think, hmm. I, I, I've, I don't know. That's one that I haven't fully untangled, but yeah. that just came at a certain moment and his, his genius for character and it is genius. I think he, he had an ability to, yeah, and yet, um, for us, he was talking about people that only existed as the stereotypes of what he presented right, and
0: it, I think reinforced them for us. And that's, yeah, I mean, oh God you mentioned something before we started recording that you feel at a disadvantage to understand America because of the way you grew up. And if that, that's kind of how I feel as well having, you know, cause I think you're right. Like that my only knowledge of black people was the three kids that went to my school and yeah, whatever was on Saturday night live. It wasn't even Richard Pryor. It was, yeah, at best Eddie Murphy. Um, And whenever I would sneak in from the country, because we didn't even have cable, so it was like, I would go in and watch like MTV. It was, you know. Yeah. It was whatever hip hop white people put on TV, whatever comedians white people put on, you know, television.
1: I watched the Celtics Lakers documentary. Have you ever seen that? The Uh -uh. ESPN? No. Well, you played basketball, right? Yeah. yeah. You, was that a period you were uh, like for me, that's kind the of. period. Yeah. Like, I
0: was a little young for okay. that. I was more of a
1: Jordan okay, Jordan yeah. era. Yeah. That was anyway. The Lakers Celtics thing, which I lived through and um probably was more of a Celtics fan, although I was just I was kind of fair, I was a bandwagon, always yeah, have been. Like yeah. I, I like to watch the best people. That's what yeah. I Yeah. Like. Totally. So um it's like a four part it's so good but it is so there is so much race woven into the story of the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers in the in that era yeah. and why who liked them what the storylines around them were of course you know bird and magic right. a, and the importance of bird to bird and magic in terms of selling the nba yeah and i it was all totally over my head Totally over my head. Yeah. Yeah. Or I think back to the fact that I always, I often liked the awkward white player. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, you know, I love a lot of black basketball players and yet I, I, like, I kind of liked Kurt Rambis.
0: Why did I kind of like Kurt Rambis? Why would you like <laughs> Kurt Rambis? I think I don't think it's necessarily racist that you like, as an awkward white man myself, the fact that I like. <laughs> that's how I. That's how I. Hope well, also, yeah. as, right. like as a guy who needs corrective lenses and need, <laughs> has needed them since third grade, seeing somebody be successful with those right. goofy ass. Or McHale?
1: Uh, how is he doing that? That big, yeah,
0: awkward dude. Yeah. But, Anyway, I did like just big, awkward dudes in general. It's like Sam Perkins was my guy too. So I think I just liked big, awkward dudes. But yeah, I mean, I think by by the time I was, you know, so Jordan comes into the league in like 84 or 85 or whatever. It was just like, so I, the only, the only basketball player I had a poster of was Jordan. Maybe when, back when, you know, you're a kid and you think you could maybe be a professional basketball player. Maybe I looked for myself on those teams and saw that, like, the only white guy who was playing a significant role was, like, a role playing shooting guard who would come in, you know, like Paxton or uh, who's the coach of the Warriors now? Steve Kerr. Kerr, yeah. Uh, but it was more like I was looking for my place in, yeah. I don't know.
1: Well, and I think, I don't think we're in that time, but I think ideally there'll be a time when every one of these little, like, whether I liked Kurt Rambis, that could just be what it is. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah, totally. Everything seems feels so freighted, and right now I'm loading it all up as I think about it with everything I see. You know, a lot of what I'm watching is about race, but it also, like The Watchmen, I love The Watchmen. <laughs> I love that show. And uh, I learned, like I didn't know about the, I didn't had not learned of the, yeah. I, I Googled it after that first episode, because I thought, oh, this is an alternative history. It's fake, yeah, right.
0: No, nope. I was like, why don't I know about that? Yeah. You know, there was a great thread from on Twitter of a a historian, a a guy who he works maybe somewhere in the somewhere in the Midwest, but he was from Oklahoma and he never heard about those riots. And he was living in the era of like the state history class you take. Like we took Washington state history. I'm sure you guys took Idaho state history Mm -hmm. when you were kids. Like you spent an entire semester thinking about your state's history. And he did not learn about the Tulsa riots. One, well, it was like, and they even get, they even get negatively racialized. They get, they're still called the Tulsa race riots, like it was the black people doing the killing. No, right. it's actually the, the Tulsa massacre. Right. And he didn't hear about that until he was like in grad school. He grew up in Tulsa. All right, I think I'm going to leave it there. Not the most elegant way to end. <laughs> like I said, this has been a rough one. It's been a rough one. But from here, the conversation sort of moves into journalism and more sort of institutional conversations, and it circles back and stuff. But but for right now, I think this is a good place to stop. We're at the hour and 20-minute mark, roughly. I wanted to thank Sean Vestal for coming on and being so vulnerable. It definitely helped me open up about my own feelings around this stuff. I can't remember if it happened in this half or the second half, but definitely teared up at a point or two, thinking about the ramifications of our behavior. I'm talking about myself personally here. I don't know if, if Sean cried or not but yeah it was just nice to get in a room two dudes being bros talking about (laughs) our complicity in systemic racism and what we can do to fucking smash it smash it so yeah next week next time whatever part two i'll unpack this little idea i've been having a little bit more in greater detail and then we'll conclude this interview with sean vestal the man the myth the legend columnist at the Spokesman Review. And actually, we didn't even talk about this, but one of the most talented fiction writers of our generation. Go find his books. Have a good week, everybody.